You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to elders past and present. It's an hour after sunrise, that is, about quarter past six, on Tuesday the 22nd of January 1946, and an Australian National Airways DC-3 is lifting off from Brisbane's Archerfield Aerodrome. The plane's bound for Cairns, some 1,050 miles to the north. Among the passengers are Detective Senior Sergeant Frank Bischoff, Chief of the Brisbane CIB's Homicide Squad and his regular partner in crime-solving, Detective Senior Sergeant William Cronow. These two officers are heading to Cairns to assist in the investigation of the double-grenade murder of two of the city's prostitutes, Holly Murphy and Kathleen Brown, and the wounding of one of their mates, Bob Davis. Detective Sergeant Bischoff, known as the big fella for his 16-stone 6'2 frame, has a head of thick dark hair, a jowly face and an arrogant stare. He's constantly in the papers as a hero cop. In the past year, Detective Sergeant Bischoff has made news by arresting a 72-year-old man for child sex offences, by busting a thief who posed as a priest, and by catching a couple of soldiers who stole £2,000. But it's the murder cases that get the biggest headlines, and the big fella is often flown from Brisbane to far-flung destinations to investigate suspected homicides. Back in February, he took the plane up to Mackay, where he charged a doctor with murdering a young woman via an abortion gone wrong. In November, he flew to Charleville to investigate the slaying of a 10-year-old boy. Just last month, December, he was back in Mackay to look into the death of another poor young woman in a different doctor's surgery. Detective Sergeant Bischoff racks up so many air miles that truth calls him a flying demon. 
Of course, there are big homicide cases in Brisbane too. Detective Sergeant Bischoff started 1945 with a successful hunt for the killer of two American servicemen. He closed last year with a case that saw six Chinese men charged with murdering one of their countrymen. In fact, Detective Sergeant Bischoff has just spent four days prosecuting these men in Brisbane Police Court, with his partner, Detective Sergeant William Cronow, as the principal witness. With that job done and all the accused committed to stand trial, the dynamic duo are now free to work the Cairns Grenade murders. Touching down at Cairns at 1.30, the detectives make their way to the hospital. Lying in a bed, recovering from shrapnel wounds, is low-level scumbag Bob Davis. For the past week, this witness has claimed he doesn't know who threw the grenade that put him here and put Holly and Kathleen into their graves. It's believed that Bob Davis is following the underworld's code of silence. But Detective Senior Sergeant Frank Bischoff will see about that. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Cairns Grenade Murders. Part three will be released later this week, but it's available now early and ad-free to Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. Links are in your show notes. If the name Frank Bischoff seems familiar, it's because he'd become Chief of Brisbane's CIB on his way to becoming Queensland's Police Commissioner. Commissioner Bischoff would resign amid corruption allegations in 1969 and he's now regarded as having been one of the most crooked senior police officers in 20th century Australia. But long before his reputation was sullied, Detective Senior Sergeant Bischoff enjoyed his status as a celebrity cop heralded in the newspapers as a murder expert. Yet even this was based on falsehoods. It had later be circulated that he'd solved 32 of 33 murders he investigated. This wasn't true at all. While Detective Sergeant Bischoff did get many convictions, some perpetrators went undetected, other accused people were acquitted, and yet others were found not guilty by reason of insanity. Detective Sergeant Bischoff, who joined the Queensland Police Force in 1925, was also said to get confessions by any means, fair or foul. In 1935, two years after he joined the CIB, he and his partner took the verbal confession of a young man suspected of killing his abusive stepfather at Boona. Yet, Detective Sergeant Bischoff didn't arrest the man as soon as he heard this admission, as he was required to do. Instead, he took the suspect to the scene of the crime, got him to reenact the murder, and then Detective Sergeant Bischoff alone witnessed the accused making a written statement admitting the crime. When the case came to trial, the judge was highly critical of these methods. He ordered the jury to leave the courtroom while the matter was discussed. As the morning bulletin in Rockhampton reported, his honour felt the need to lay down the law to the men who were supposed to uphold it. Quote, Before the suspected man opened his mouth, the police should get a justice of the peace and warn the prisoner. If he wanted to make a statement, let him make it there, before a shorthand writer or some reputable person who could take it down in writing. Instead, Detective Sergeant Bischoff and his partner had segregated the suspect, trampled his rights and gotten a confession no one but they could corroborate. Regarding the accused, the judge went on, quote, If he wanted to confess, why did they not let him confess in the open court or in front of his friends? To deny this right is a horrible thing. Surely a threat is implied when a man is taken to the police station by the police. 
The judge was so doubtful of the police's version that he made all of them swear in court that no threat or promises had been made. After that, his honour would allow their testimony to be heard by the jury. For the record, the jury acquitted the accused, another of Detective Sergeant Bischoff's failures that's not part of his official scorecard. In his later career, there would be other similar claims that Detective Sergeant Bischoff had used threats or inducements to get confessions. He was also accused of simply making them up. The most infamous such allegation came from Arthur Slim Halliday, who got life in prison for a 1952 murder because the jury believed Detective Sergeant Bischoff when he said that Slim had confessed to him. Now, in the fourth week of January 1946, Detective Sergeant Bischoff was in Cairns to get Bob Davis to spill. But how would he do it? Carrot or stick? Bob didn't stand accused of having done anything wrong, so police didn't have the leverage of charges. Rather than threats, perhaps inducement was the way to go. Bob was injured, he was unable to work, and he wasn't eligible for government support. The poor sad sack didn't have two pennies to rub together. That was a place to start, as Detective Sergeant Bischoff would report to his superiors, quote, it appeared essential that every endeavour should be taken to exhort one Robert William Joseph Davis, then a patient in the Cairns Hospital, to supply information which I believed he undoubtedly would be able to give, which would lead to a solution of this double murder. Davis informed me that he was without money and required to buy certain toilets, tobacco and refreshments whilst a patient at the hospital. I deemed it prudent and necessary to advance him the sum of one pound there and then. Simply adjusted for inflation, one pound is about $75 today. But a better measure is that one pound was then about what the average man earned for doing a day's work. By this stage, police had been interviewing Bob Davis twice a day for the past week with no result. Detective Sergeant Bischoff coughing up some cash didn't change that. At least, not yet. While Bob's lips remained sealed, behind the scenes police were looking at numerous suspects. They were interested in a Norwegian alien and a Yugoslavian man. The police sought advice on these men's whereabouts from Sydney CIB. Turned out the Norwegian was an inmate of a mental hospital and the Yugoslavian man had been in Sydney on the night of the murders. On the 25th of January, Detective Sergeant Donahue and plainclothes constable George Mason got a confidential tip about a man who might be able to tell them about the grenade attack, William Leslie Fitzgerald. This was Billy, the Heatherview boarding house resident who, as we heard in the first instalment, was questioned by Detective Constable Noakes on the night of the blast. Billy was the sort of chap who wouldn't have been out of place in one of those dark Hollywood thrillers that were increasingly popular. Movies that sometimes featured drifters who came unstuck and found themselves accused of murder. By his own account, Billy had been born in St Kilda on the 8th of January 1917. His father was an engineer and his mother a housewife. At the age of 10, these parents sent him to Sydney to live with his godparents, Mr and Mrs Leonard Docker of Hurstville. Billy would say he didn't know why he'd been sent away and he'd never see his parents again. He went to public school in Hurstville and left with his qualifying certificate at the age of 14. For the next two years, Billy said he was unemployed and living with his godparents. That made sense. He was just a young boy and this was smack bang at the height of the Great Depression. Around 1933, 
Billy, now 16, got a job with Stan Breen, a travelling salesman, and he took a place in Enmore. Billy went door-to-door selling bath cleaner for the next four years. Having had enough of that life, he worked for a year or so at a motor garage in Petersham. Next, Billy took up the colourful life of a carny, working with Smiler Thompson's travelling sideshow as it toured New South Wales and Queensland. For three years, Billy got Rubes in to play the Hoopla and Knock'em attractions. He travelled with Smiler as far north as Cairns before returning to Sydney. Billy parted ways with Smiler Thompson after the 1941 Sydney show and headed for Brisbane. He got a job through the Labor Bureau, which sent him to the Gordon Vale Sugar Mill near Cairns, that outfit deploying him to cut cane near Innisfail for the season. When the season was done, Billy stayed on as a farm labourer for the next 18 months. It was in Innisfail in March 1943 that he got his single criminal conviction. This was for a minor theft for which he had to make £7 restitution and enter into a £20 good behaviour bond. Billy got a job at the Sabinda Sugar Mill where he repaired tram lines, but a bout of pleurisy put him out of action. Moving to Cairns, he worked on the wharves. In May 1945, he said, the manpower authorities directed him to return to the sugar industry, but he got permission to join a fishing trawler instead. Billy worked on the boats until September, and since then, with the war over, had done casual work around Cairns. On the 16th of January, as the whole town was talking about the grenade atrocity, Billy got a job on the Cairns dredge Trinity Bay, which for decades had kept the channel open and operated to reclaim land. Detective Sergeant Donahue and Constable Mason found Billy aboard Trinity Bay at Wharf No. 1 on the 25th of January. They told him that they'd been told he knew more about the grenade attack than he'd led on to Detective Constable Noakes when interviewed at the Heatherview soon after the blast. Billy replied, quote, No, I don't know any more than I told Mr. Noakes that night. He accompanied the officers to the Cairns Police Station. Constable Mason said, quote, we have received information that you have been associated with a woman named Dot Martin. This appeared to be an allegation that Dot was a prostitute and that Billy had been pimping her. Billy replied, No, Mr. Mason, I never got a penny from her. I ran a few errands for her when she was ill. Questioned further, Billy said he knew that Dot was friends with Thelma Parsons. This was Thelma Clifford, a.k.a. Thelma Davis, that is, Bob Davis's previously grievously abused ex-wife. It had seemed that after Thelma got a divorce from Bob, she'd remained in far north Queensland and had continued to be involved in the criminal underworld. Billy told the police that he knew there had been trouble between Bob and Thelma, but he denied that Thelma, or Dot, had asked him to do injury to Bob Davis. The police asked Billy if he was prepared to give a statement about his movements on the night of the 14th of January. Billy was, but he also had something new to say. Quote, I will tell you something now I should have told you before, but I was waiting to see Maxie Noakes. Billy told them that around 8 o'clock on the night of the 14th, he'd been standing outside Mick Poulos's club when a man had come up the street from Carol Davis's place. This fellow had said, quote, I am a returned man. I just got my discharge this morning. Billy recalled he had a tattoo on his left arm above the elbow a design of a ship with a blue ring around it. Pointing along towards Carol Davis's joint, this tattooed man had said, What's the number of that place up there near the laneway? Billy had replied, I don't know. The fellow had asked, Will you come with me while I find the number out? Billy told him, No, I can't go with you. I'm working. The man then said, I was down the lane and I got touched for 50 shillings and a bottle of wine. 
I got knocked down by a bloke with a pair of glasses on, white shirt and khaki shorts. Will you come back with me while I get my pipe? Billy said it wasn't his concern. This man had then said of whoever had robbed and beaten him, quote, I will do him up in the morning. All I want is my pipe. This man's description of his attacker, glasses, white shirt, khaki shorts, actually matched what bespectacled Bob Davis had been wearing the night of the attack. Constable Mason asked Billy what the tattooed man had otherwise looked like. Billy told him, About 40 years of age, 5 foot 9 or 5 foot 10 in height, he had wide shoulders and was well built. He was slightly wrinkled about the mouth and appeared to have a fresh complexion. The man had a cut on his mouth and another cut and blood on one cheek. Billy said the man had been dressed in dark trousers, white singlet, had a light grey hat with a wide black band and had been carrying a white and red striped shirt over one shoulder. He'd been wearing tan coloured shoes. Billy said he'd definitely know him if he saw him again. After their conversation, Billy said, this man had walked towards Carol Davis's place. Billy had gone into the club. After washing some dishes in there, he'd again seen this man on the corner of Grafton and Spence Streets. And at this point, the man had been talking to the club owner, Mick Poulos, and a couple of other Greek men. Had Billy Fitzgerald encountered a man who'd lobbed a grenade as revenge for being robbed during a red light assignation? The police made a search for the man that Billy described, but to no avail. Nor could they find anyone who'd seen a man matching that description that night. Billy's claim about the man saying he was a just-discharged soldier echoed what Bob had told the police initially. Yet, as we heard in part one, this claim had by then been widely reported in the newspapers. Was Billy just tailoring his tale to line up with Bob's story? If so, what he didn't realise was that the police didn't believe Bob. In any case, Billy Fitzgerald on the 25th of January was free to go after questioning. The next day, Cairns CIB Detective Senior Sergeant Hurd would say he was out and about in the city when Billy came up to him and said, quote, Have you done any good with that business yet? I was in Poulos's club when it went off. It made a hell of a noise. I did not go out, but later went upstairs in Heatherview and someone, I don't know who it was, told me a bomb had been thrown over the road. Detective Sergeant Hurd asked Billy what he'd been doing in Poulos's club at the time of the blast. Billy said, I was having a cup of coffee. Sub-Inspector Martin Elford, who had charge of the investigation for Cairns CIB, tried a new approach to get Bob to talk. Bob was sharing a house with a good mate named Edward Morton, and this bloke was friends with a chap called Norman McFarlane. Sub-Inspector Elford enlisted Norm to help him. Ed was visiting Bob every day in hospital, and what the police wanted Norm to do was influence Ed to convince Bob to name the murderer. On the night of the 28th of January, Bob sent word to Detective Sergeants Bischoff, Martin, Cronow and Hurd. He needed to see them tomorrow morning at the hospital before he was discharged. The police turned up as requested. Finally, Bob told the truth. The man who threw the grenade was known to him. It had been Billy Fitzgerald. This was the breakthrough the police needed. How had they achieved it? Detective Sergeant Hurd would write to his superiors, quote, I might mention that Davis was most reluctant in disclosing Fitzgerald's name as being responsible for the offence. 
He admitted to me during one of my early interviews with him that he himself was a man with a criminal record, that he was likely to receive a term of imprisonment at any time, and pointed out that his presence in jail with a man whom he had been responsible for sending there would be most uncomfortable. There is no doubt in my mind that the work done by the man McFarlane through the man Morton was ultimately responsible for Davis disclosing the offender's identity. That was one account of how Bob broke the underworld code. But here's another found in a memo written by Detective Sergeant Bischoff. Quote, On the 28th of January 1946, whilst Davis was still an inmate of Cairns District Hospital and still without money, he requested me to obtain his watch from C. Clawson, watchmaker and jeweller, Shield Street, Cairns, where it had been lodged for repairs. Keeping in mind Davis's promise to me that on his discharge from hospital, he would divulge the name of the perpetrator in the double murder, I could not take the risk in turning down this request. Bischoff paid the £1, 2 shillings, sixpence for the watch, which, on top of the £1 he'd already given Bob, meant he now had handed over £2, 2 shillings and sixpence. Had Bob named Billy because his mate Edward Morton had gotten in his ear? Or was it because Detective Sergeant Bischoff was offering handsome inducements? Maybe it was both. In any case, here's what Bob would tell the police and testify to in court. Bob said he had visited Cairns on several occasions over the years, most recently arriving at the end of October. He'd first met Billy Fitzgerald in December at the Australian Hotel, where Bob was then living. They'd gotten on the beers all night and had knocked around together for the next few days, drinking and doing a painting job. But Bob said he and Billy had a bit of a falling out in mid-December. Bob had been at the races on a Saturday afternoon when Billy had asked for a tip. See, he had an old fellow in tow who was looking to bet 40 or 50 quid. If the bloke won, Billy would get a cut and he'd give Bob half. Bob said, sure, tell the old bloke to bet on Capsicum. The horse won, but when Billy came back, he said to Bob, Bad luck, we backed Thin Jim. Bob asked, What is the strong of that? Which was the 1940s way of saying, What the hell? Billy said, We backed Thin Jim alright, but never mind, I'll make it up to you tonight. They arranged to meet at midnight outside Allwoods, which was a Cairns billiard room from which bookies operated. Billy told Bob that if he turned up, it'd be worth 70 or 80 quid to him. What had he been talking about? Bob didn't specify to the police, though the implication was it was criminal. Bob didn't go that night. The following Monday, he saw Billy at the commercial hotel, drinking with a couple of men. Bob took one of them aside and said, Sound this joker out about Saturday night. Later, Bob spoke to the man again. The bloke told him, quote, It is just as well you didn't turn up as you were going to get done up. So Billy had seemingly ripped off Bob at the races and then that night had been planning to bash him to boot. If that was true, Billy seemed like the sort of man that Bob ought to give a wide berth to. Bob told the police that at 11pm on the 9th of January, he'd gone to Holly Murphy's place at 56 Grafton Street. Holly had been drinking beer with Kathleen Brown, another woman, and with Billy Fitzgerald. Holly had said to Bob, have a drink. But he said no thanks and stayed only a few minutes before heading home. Then, on the 11th of January, Bob told the police he'd seen Billy outside Pulos's club. Despite their falling out, Bob asked Billy for help wheeling two bikes from the International Club to Pulos's. Billy had given the assistance as requested. 
Then Bob had gone to see Carol Davis, who lived two doors down and had stayed about an hour. Bob recounted his movements on Monday the 14th of January, the day of the attack, in detail. At around 10.15 that morning, he and his mate Morton had gone down to the National Hotel and had three or four drinks. Then he bought some plywood, took it over to Carol's place and dropped it off, and then headed back home for lunch and a snooze. Bob went back to Carol's place at 3.30. He, Carol, and her pimp Leo had a few drinks and then went out to the Royal Hotel and got a case of lager. They went back to Carol's and got stuck in. At around quarter past five, Carol called Kathleen over to join them, and Holly was soon there too. Bob claimed that he stopped drinking around 6.30, though the others kept on knocking back beers. Bob started drinking again at 7.30 and kept on until quarter past ten, when he supposedly took another breather. At this point he said Carol was, quote, fairly shot, but he himself was only, quote, about halfway shot. I never get real drunk. I always know when I've had enough. Carol passed out and went to bed. Using Holly and Kathleen's working names, Bob added, quote, Vivian, Kitty and Leo had more to drink. Holly, aka Vivian, said he should come over to hers. Bob said that at this time he was dressed in shirt, singlet, khaki shorts and sandals. He took off his shirt and left it at Carol's place. And they took two bottles of lager over to Holly's. Bob stood outside with the beers while she opened the door and switched on the light in the back room. They traipsed out to the concrete slab under the awning. Holly set out two chairs and they sat and opened a bottle of beer. A few minutes later, Kathleen joined them and she sat on a box. Bob said Kathleen had been closest to the partition that separated the back area from the Chinese people's quarters. Holly had been about two feet from her and he about two feet from Holly, so he was closest to the laneway. Holly and he were facing the kitchen door and Kathleen had been facing the lane. Bob told the police, We were talking there and someone came up the lane. He knew that someone, Billy, because there'd been enough light to see him. Billy had been dressed in dark trousers and had on either a white singlet or shirt with short sleeves. Bob said he was about five yards away, standing near the bushes on the far side of the lane. Bob had stood up and started walking towards him. Billy took something from his trousers. As Bob would tell the committal, quote, I got within about five feet of him and he threw something. I saw it pass my left side but did not see what it was. This thing that was thrown was thrown in an overarm throw toward the two women. As he threw it, he called out, Chop this out between you three C-words. Bob said he'd heard Holly say something. Then there'd been the blast. Quote, I fell down and then I jumped straight up. Holly, he said, was staggering around and screaming. He said something to her and she sat down near the lane. So did Bob, collapsing and bloodied. Now, talking to police, Bob had a lot more to say about Billy and what he'd been up to. Detectives listened avidly. When Bob was finished, late that Sunday morning, detectives set out to find Billy Fitzgerald. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Detective Sergeants Heard and Cronau went on foot. Detective Sergeants Martin and Bischoff took out a police truck. It wasn't long before the latter duo spotted the suspect crossing Grafton Street. Detective Sergeant Martin turned the vehicle around, but they lost sight of Billy. Detective Sergeant Martin soon saw him again, peering around the door of the International Club, supposedly looking furtive as he tried to see where the cops were. Detective Sergeant Martin and Detective Sergeant Cronau apprehended Billy and brought him to the Cairns Police Station. Detective Sergeant Hurd advised Billy he was going to be questioned because Bob Davis had just identified him as the man who'd thrown the grenade. Billy denied it vehemently. What he wanted was for Bob to make these allegations to his face. So Bob was brought in. Bob recounted for the police how he and Billy had met, had beers and later in December gone to the races and had their dispute. Billy agreed that all of that was true, but he claimed that he'd also told the truth at the races that day. The old bloke had backed Thin Jim and Billy hadn't ripped off Bob. Bob now repeated his claim that Billy had intended to beat him up. According to the police record, the accused made no response to this damaging allegation. But Bob also now recounted how Billy had helped him wheel the bikes. Billy agreed this was true. Next, Bob described Billy's malicious character and his likely motive for the double murder. Using Holly's working name, Bob said, quote, Vivian told me that you touched a mug over at her place for £12. What this meant was that while a punter had been having sex with Holly, Billy had taken this considerable amount of money from the man's trousers. Bob continued, That was about five nights before the bombing. She told me that you put the £12 down on her table and that she hung on to the lot of it and she would not give you any of it. He went on, quote, You then threatened her and told her that you would do her up. And when you said that, she told you that if you touched her, she would get someone to do you up. And you said to her, I suppose you will get that C-word of a Davis to do me up. And you said to her, I will do him up as well as you. Here it was, a motive for Billy to want to do harm to Bob and to Holly. Confronted with this, Billy said in the police's presence that it was all a lie. It had never happened. Bob went on to Billy and the cops, quote, On the Monday night of the bombing, I was sitting at the back of Vivian's place talking to Vivian and Kitty Kelly when you appeared in the laneway. I got up and walked towards you and you threw that bomb and killed Vivian and Kitty. When you threw that bomb, you said, chop that up between you three C-words. Billy replied, I never threw that bomb. You are making a mistake, Bob. Bob shot back, I'm not making any mistake. You are the right man. Detective Sergeant Hurd interrupted, asking Bob, quote, Are you quite definite that Fitzgerald is the man that appeared in the laneway and threw the bomb? Bob said, I am absolutely certain. I would not say it was him if I was not certain. Detective Sergeant Hurd asked, Would you have any reason to accuse Fitzgerald of throwing that bomb if you were not certain? Bob replied, I would not put any man in cold. I would not say it was Billy if it was not true. Then, speaking to the accused, Bob said, You and I have never had a cross word, have we, Billy? with the exception of the race course that day. Detective Sergeant Hurd said to Billy, Would you like to say anything or ask this man any questions? Billy said to Bob, Are you quite sure I am the fellow and that you are not making any mistake? Bob replied, You're the fellow, all right. Detective Sergeant Hurd asked Billy if there was any reason he knew for Bob to falsely accuse him. Billy replied, No, I don't, but he must be making a mistake. Bob stood firm. 
I have nothing to gain by saying these things if they are not true. The police, Bob and Billy, then went to the crime scene, where, as Detective Sergeant Heard recorded, quote, various positions were there pointed out by Davis in the presence of Fitzgerald. Back at the station, no longer in Bob's presence, Billy was questioned further. Detective Sergeant Heard asked him to recount his movements on the night of the 14th. Billy did so in more detail than previously. Quote, I was at Poulos's club that night. I served two or three men with soft drinks. About eight o'clock, I went to Shield Street and had a milkshake at the Black and White Cafe. I then went back to the club. I would not have been away for more than half an hour. Sometime later, Peter Poulos closed and locked the front door of the club. Soon after, we all went out to the back. When the bomb went off, I was in the club. The front door was locked and none of us went out to see what had happened. There were about five men playing cards. Frank Gill, Percy Hill, Peter, who looks after the billiard saloon next door, Laurie Utronich, and another man, an Italian, were also there. Detective Sergeant Heard said to Billy, If you were in the club, as you say, those men whose names you have mentioned would remember your being there? Billy said, Yes. Ask Peter Poulos. He was in the club then. Detective Sergeant Heard asked Billy if he remembered what men in the club had said when they heard the explosion. Sure, Billy said. Percy Hill had asked, What is that? He, Billy, had replied, It sounded like a cracker. Percy Hill had replied, That's no bleeping cracker. Billy went on. About ten minutes later, I went up to Heatherview. Several people were looking over the railing, and somebody said a bomb had been thrown at one of the joints across the road. Billy said he hadn't spoken to anyone on the veranda. Later, he'd been sleeping up there when Detective Constable Noakes had questioned him. Detective Sergeant Heard asked Billy if he'd known the women operating out of Grafton Street. Billy said no. Detective Sergeant Heard said he'd heard Billy associated with Dot Martin. Billy said, yes, he'd run a few messages for her when she was sick. Yes, he knew she was friendly with Bob's ex-wife Thelma. Yes, he'd known of the trouble between Thelma and Bob. No, he hadn't been asked to hurt Bob by Thelma or by Dot. Billy admitted that he was addicted to booze when he could get his hands on it. On the afternoon of the bombing, he said, he might have had a couple of drinks, but that was it. Detective Sergeant Heard believed he'd be able to clear this up pretty quickly. Billy had been, by his own account, sober or soberish, and had given an account of his movements at the time of the blast, and named the men who'd be able to corroborate his alibi. All Detective Sergeant Heard had to do was check with them. It fell to Detective Constable Noakes to question Billy about his background. As we've heard, this officer already knew him from Innisfail. In his report, Detective Constable Noakes set out Billy's story. The rejected St Kilda kid who'd grown up in Sydney and then worked as a travelling salesman, grease monkey, carny spruker, cane cutter, wharfman, fisherman and dredge man. But Detective Constable Noakes wasn't entirely convinced. He wrote that Billy was, quote, very evasive when supplying me with the above particulars, especially with regard to his childhood, and consequently I am inclined to doubt their truthfulness. I was able to use Ancestry.com.au and Trove to check some of what Billy had said about his background. His claimed godparents, Mr. and Mrs. Docker, did live in Hurstville, as he said. There was a Stan Breen of Enmore and a sideshow operator named Smiler Thompson who worked the East Coast. Of course, that only shows that Billy knew of these people. Nevertheless, Detective Constable Noakes reported that Billy's account of his movements in North Queensland over the past five years did check out, and his employers had all found him satisfactory. 
Further, Billy had only that one stealing conviction from Innisfail in 1943. But, Detective Noakes reported, this man was no paragon of virtue. In Cairns, he'd been associating, quote, with the undesirable element and was an associate of prostitutes. Detective Constable Noakes noted, quote, The accused is addicted to liquor. He is also a keen follower of racehorse meetings and spends all his money on betting. He is in poor financial circumstances. He has no ready money, and the only personal effects he has are a very few clothes. Seeking to confirm Billy's story that he'd been in the club when the grenade attack happened, Detective Sergeant Hurd interviewed club owners Mick and Peter Poulos, Billy's card-playing associate Laurie Utronich, and Poulos' in-law Mrs Brackenridge. None of them corroborated Billy's alibi. When Detective Sergeant Hurd came back with this information, Billy was bewildered. He said, If they were fair dinkum, they'd be able to tell you I was there at the time of the bombing. Detective Sergeant Hurd said that Peter Poulos, who Billy had claimed had been in the club when the blast was heard, had said he'd gone to bed at 9.30 and hadn't even heard the explosion. Billy replied to this, He's telling lies. Detective Sergeant Hurd said Mick Poulos told him when he closed the club, Billy had been standing outside. Further, Mick said, he'd been upstairs in the Heatherview when the bomb had gone off. Billy said to this, He's telling lies. It was Peter Poulos who shut the club up. Laurie Utronich said that Billy hadn't been playing cards when the bomb had gone off. Meanwhile, Mrs Brackenridge had told Detective Sergeant Hurd she'd been on the Heatherview veranda a few minutes after the bombing and this had been when Billy had appeared by her side. He'd supposedly told her he hadn't heard the blast. But Billy's story was that he'd arrived later than that from the club and that he hadn't spoken to anyone on the veranda. Of Mrs Brackenridge, he said, she's telling lies. But why would these people lie about Billy to frame him for a double murder? Some of them had known him for years. Detective Sergeant Hurd next went to interview card players Percy Hill and Frank Gill. Both men said Billy hadn't been in Poulos's club when the grenade went off. Confronted with these denials, the accused said, I can't understand that. This looks serious and bad for me. Detective Sergeant Hurd asked Billy if he knew that you could get from Grafton Street into Lake Street via the laneway where the bombing had occurred. Billy said yes, he'd seen people go that way. Detective Sergeant Hurd asked Billy what clothing he'd been wearing that night. He confirmed he'd been wearing dark brown trousers and a short-sleeved white shirt with no hat. This fit with the man that Constable Mason had seen running along the street just after the explosion. Detective Sergeant Hurd asked Billy if, at around 10.45, he'd run along Lake Street from the ACF building, turned into Spence Street and gone towards Grafton Street. Billy replied, No, I was in the club. But he couldn't prove that, and police had eyewitness Bob Davis saying that Billy was the man who'd thrown the grenade. At 11.30pm, Detective Sergeant Hurd arrested Billy. He read the charges that he'd murdered Holly Murphy, that he'd murdered Kathleen Brown, and that he'd unlawfully wounded Bob Davis while trying to do him grievous bodily harm. To each charge, Billy replied, I never threw that bomb, Mr Hurd. Billy would face court the following morning and be remanded until his committal hearing on the 7th of February. That was eight days away. During that time, what was to be done with crucial witness Bob Davis? That decision would be made by Detective Senior Sergeant Frank Bischoff. 
and it'd have serious consequences. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Cairns Grenade Murders. Part three will be released at the end of this week, but it's available now, early and ad-free, to Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.